We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 once again. Ephesians chapter 4. And let's just see what you remember from Isaiah 40 verse 8. Just repeat this after me. Ready? The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Do you believe that? Then let's see what he has to say. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Indeed, this is the Word of God. And as we pick up with verse 25, it's important to remember that it has a a context. This isn't an isolated uh, passage of Scripture. And the main idea that I want you to get this morning, and, and as we pick up and look again to what we considered last week, is this, that the life of Christ within us replaces sin with righteousness. The life of Christ within us replaces sin with righteousness. That is an absolute statement. I believe it 100%. It is true. It's what the Word of God teaches us. You see, we do, if we have been born again, have the very life of Christ within us. Jesus, as we've quoted so many times before, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And those who have received Christ have received the life. They have received new life. In fact, the Bible describes the gift of salvation as the gift of eternal life. And John tells us, or Jesus told us in John 17, that that life is not merely quantity of days. It's not the simple fact that you get to live forever, but it's a certain kind of life, and it's that kind of life of knowing God, having a relationship with God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having that life of Christ in us, which is the complete opposite of what we were before we knew Christ. How does Paul describe us in in chapter 2 of this very letter? He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And so in yourself, in your sin, you're dead. But now having been born again, you have received the gift of life. That life of God within you produces real life change. A real salvation produces real life change. And you can't convince me otherwise because that's what the Word of God says. We quoted this verse so many times before and we're going to keep quoting it. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things, all things, let me say it again, all things are become new. Now, that doesn't mean that you become a Christian and instantly you're perfect, sinless, and never do anything wrong again. 
But everything in you has been reoriented back towards God. Everything in you is made new. You are now inhabited by the Spirit of God and you have His help in living a righteous life in Christ. And real salvation produces real life change. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things. When I talk about real life change in in the life of a Christian, I'm not talking about this white-knuckle effort. Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so now i got to work really, really hard to do everything that God has told me to do so that He'll stay happy with me. And if I don't get it right, He's probably going to turn me away for a little while or be mad at me or hold a grudge. And we think that way because that's how we treat each other, right? We think that God is going to work the same way that we would work. So I'm not talking about this, this white-knuckling kind of effort, i got to get it right so that God will be happy with me. If you are in Christ, friend, you are accepted, you are beloved, you are saved. And God produces in us fruit by that life that is Christ within us. I also want to be clear on this, that this isn't a, uh, I better do right so I can prove I'm a Christian kind of thing either. Because you can hear that real salvation produces real life change. And you look at your own life and you say, well, I want to make sure I'm a real Christian, so I better change my life. That's not the right way to think about this either. The reality is this, that the life of Christ in you will produce spiritual fruit, provided you really have that life of Christ in you. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus said, abide in me, and if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. If you are in Christ, you have the life of Christ in you, you are abiding in him, you will bear fruit. And so the fruit of our lives, whether good or bad, really shows where we stand in our relationship with God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you you know a tree by the fruit that it bears. Can you gather grapes of thorns or figs from thistles? No. You know a tree by its fruit. A good tree is going to produce good fruit. A life that is grounded in Christ and has the life of Christ in it will produce Christ-like fruit. But a life that consistently produces bad fruit, a life that consistently is in a pattern of sin and disobedience to God, is a life that really has no right to claim any assurance of salvation because of the fruit that it bears. The fruit shows what kind of tree it really is. And so what we're talking about when we're talking about this life of Christ and the production of fruit, we're just talking about the simple progress of Christian maturity. Throughout your Christian life, as you walk with the Lord, as you spend time in His Word, as you uh, develop a life of prayer, God is going to reveal areas of your life that is, that is not fully submitted to Him. You might be a Christian for, for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and God opened your eyes to something that you haven't seen before. Some area of your life that you haven't yet surrendered to His control. And if you're a true Christian following after Jesus, when you see that area of sin, what do you do? You want to forsake it. You want to confess it. Say, God, I'm sorry. I didn't see that before. I'm I'm done with it. And it's a lifestyle of repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal as we grow closer to God and become more aware of where we stand with Him. This idea that we talked about last week in verse 22 to 24 uh, is about putting off and putting on. Look again at those verses. He says, verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. 
This idea of putting off and putting on is just like changing clothes. You take off dirty clothes, you put on clean clothes, if you're normal. You take off what's dirty, you put on what's clean. And what we've been talking about, and we said this last week, is that this is simply becoming what you already are. You're becoming what you already are. Colossians 3, Paul says, uses this similar kind of language in verse 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. He doesn't tell them to put off the old man. He says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. When you were born again, you did in that moment Put off the old man. You're not that person anymore. And you put on the righteousness of Christ. You are now a new creation in Christ. That is a done deal. It happened when you were saved. And so now from this point on, the command still stands to put off the old man and put on the new. Because now that we have that standing before God as a new creation, we need to live like it. The illustration comes to mind of, of a wedding band. Why do I wear this wedding band? Because I'm married. And I'm just as married now as I was 10 years ago. And 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, I'll be just as married then as I am now. I'll never be any more married than I am. Right? That doesn't change. But this thing serves as a reminder and as a help that I better live like a married man. There are things... That a single man could get away with, that a married man better not do. There are conversations a single man can have that a married man better not have. Some of you ladies in the church, I hope you don't ever think that I'm I'm rude, but if I get a text or a message from a lady, unless you're old enough to be my grandmother, I just keep those messages short. And I say, you know what, why don't you catch me and we'll talk about this, uh, you know, at church. And I'll answer you, I'll I'll be polite, but I'm not going to have an extended conversation with you. I'm not being rude, I would just rather offend you than my wife. Because I'm a married man. And I'm going to live like it. And I'm not going to do anything that would put that relationship in jeopardy. And so it is with the, with the Holy Spirit. We have, if we have been born again, received the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God within you. You are just as saved now as you were the day you became a Christian. You'll be just as saved 20 or 30 or 40 years from now as you were that moment and as you are now. You'll never be any more saved, any more of a Christian than you are at this moment, if you are a Christian. But we have the Spirit of God in us as a reminder and as a help of who we really are and that we need to live like it. That we must be putting off the old man, the old remnants of that nature, and putting on the character and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we conduct ourselves. And so that's sort of where we finished up with things last week. But then we get to verse 25 through 32 that we've just read this morning, and he just starts getting specific. If a Baptist preacher got up and said these things and they weren't in the Bible, you'd have said, you're just meddling now. Leave us alone. Quit pointing your finger at my life and telling me how to live. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words to say, yes, you need to put off the old man and you need to put on the new. Let me just give you some very specific ways you need to be doing that. And so he actually gives us five things here, five uh, things that we need to put off and five things that we need to put on. And so the first is this. We need to put off lying and put on truth. 
Put off lying and put on truth. Verse 25, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If Jesus Christ himself says that he is the truth, then surely his people ought to be people who are characterized by truth. In fact, lying is what Satan does. John 8, 44, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is a liar and he is the father of all lies. And when you lie, you are living not like Jesus, your Savior, but you're living like Satan. You live like the devil. In fact, liars gets lumped in with a list of a whole lot of other sins when the last judgment is described. My grandmother likes to remind me of this verse when I was a child. Verse Revelation 21.8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. You might read that list and say, yeah, those people are going to hell. But then he tacks, then he tacks on at the end, And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I usually just got the second half of that verse if I got caught in a lie. You know, the Bible says that all liars are going to have their part in the lake of fire. Thank you, grandmother. That's a nice way to speak to a child today, right? It got the point across, though. Tell the truth. Because people who tell lies are people who are living like Satan. People who tell lies are those who will be punished at the judgment. There are all kinds of ways you can do this. Some people are just habitual liars and they tell lies just because they've, they've done it so long they don't know how to do anything else. I'm going to say that's probably not most of you. But we're still deceptive in the way we present ourselves and the way we talk to other people. You know, there's financial things on paper. We'll talk about stealing too. These things overlap. We're just a little smudge of the truth benefits you. And so you don't really think much of it. One of the biggest lies, I think, that gets told comes after the question, how are you? Because the answer is, go ahead and say it. Fine. Fine. Everybody knows that's the right answer. But friends, Christians ought to be able to be characterized by the truth. Now, I don't think you're coming in here and just absolutely rebelling against God if you say, I'm fine, when someone asks how you're doing. But I will say that we as Christians ought to be honest with each other if we're able to be honest with anybody. Because he says just that. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Friends, we are members of the same body. We're all different parts of the same body. We've talked about that before. And if we're not honest about what's going on in the body, how can we take care of it? If you break a bone and you just ignore it, the whole body's going to suffer. You act like it's fine. Oh, it's nothing. Some of y'all are like that. Stuff goes on and y'all just blow it off. And then I find out that you're in the hospital three days after a surgery. Because, you, you know, you got to take care of yourself. you got to let people know whenever there's things going on. Don't go it alone, but speak the truth with one another because we're of the same body. So put off lying and put on truth. The second thing is this, put off sinful anger and put on, what would you think he would say? Self-control? 
calm, serenity. Don't, actually, it's this. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Look there, verse 26. This is, this is what it says. Be angry. This is a bad time to cut a verse off and take it out of context. Be angry. I'm going to live by that one today. Ticked off. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. You see, there are things that should make us angry. Psalm 119 verse 53, David said, indignation, fancy word for anger. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. There are things that ought to anger Christians. There are injustices. There are crimes. There are heinous sins that ought to make people angry. But the question is, what do you do with your anger? And how do you handle it? Somebody said righteous anger is just getting angry and not cussing. <laughs> not exactly. But he gives us some very specific things here. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, anger in itself is an emotion. It's not inherently sinful. But you can become angry even over a right thing and respond sinfully. So when you become angry, you have to check yourself because it's when you're angry, it's when the emotions are high that you're at greatest risk to sin. And so you need to know yourself. You've got to keep a check on yourself. And when you feel the blood pressure going up and when you know you're getting worked up about something, you have to stop, tap the brakes, step back and say, Jesus, I need to just abide in you right now and I need your help to respond to this rightly and not sin. Boy, would that save a lot of fights in the home, wouldn't it? That'd keep some people from getting fired at work. That'd keep some fights from breaking out in the church. If when you became angry, you immediately said, Lord Jesus, help me to handle this anger rightly and not sin. Not only he says, don't sin, but he says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And what he's getting at here is deal with it swiftly. Don't let it simmer. If you become angry about something, even if you're absolutely 100% right to be angry, and usually we're not absolutely 100% right to be angry, maybe like 96%, at least for myself, right? But even if you were absolutely 100% right to be angry, what he says is deal with it right away. Take a minute, make sure you're not going to sin, make sure you're not letting emotions take control, and then deal with it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That doesn't mean that nothing ever can wait till the next day. Sometimes by necessity it must. But the point is this. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Don't let it get hotter. But when you're angry, deal with it right away. Someone said, uh, the one who lets the sun go down on your anger goes to bed with the devil. Because of the next part. He gives us a warning here. He says, nor give place, don't give an opportunity to the devil. 
Anger that results in sin or anger that isn't dealt with swiftly gives Satan himself an opportunity, a place in your life, in your family, in your church. So when you're angry, deal with it. Jesus said, if your brother's in a fault, go talk to your brother. See if you can restore between you and him alone. If you're angry about anything at all, deal with it swiftly. Check your attitude, make sure you're not sinning, and then deal with it right away. Because if you don't, Satan will have an opportunity. Don't let that happen. Don't give him a place at your table. Don't let him sit in the pew next to you at church. Deal with your anger. Don't let it grow. The third thing is this. Put off stealing and put on hard work and generosity. Put off stealing and put on hard work and generosity. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now this, you know, sometimes you read the Bible, and I don't know if y'all are like me or not, but I read something like this and I step back and I'll say, did he really have to tell the Ephesians not to steal? I mean, what kind of church was this? What kind of Christians were these people that he, had, he felt like he had to put it in his letter to them, do not steal? And now you think about the circumstances that, we're, that they're in. It makes a little more sense, I guess. Not everyone was as wealthy as we are, certainly. They didn't have the plenty that we have in the United States of America. People struggled. The, the battle for bread was a, a very real battle for many every day. And so if you're poor and you don't have enough money to make ends meet, you've got some options. You can borrow. You can beg. Or you can steal. There's no food stamps, no welfare, no backpack program at the school. You can borrow, beg, or steal. And for some, apparently, they resorted to steal. People say this all the time. You don't know, you don't know what you'll do if you're kid is crying because he's hungry. And apparently some of the Ephesians had resorted to theft. Now, I would say that none of us have come to that point where we've stolen out of necessity. But that doesn't mean that none of us have stolen. I'll let the Holy Spirit do his work in your heart and reveal anything there. Um, but instead of stealing, what is it that we're to put on? What is the positive action we're supposed to take instead of stealing? Labor. Work. Second Thessalonians 3 says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Did you know that was in the Bible? It is. And it stirs up some people like crazy. What do you mean? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. God will not honor laziness. Now, what about those who can't work or still have need even though they work hard? Well, he actually makes provision for that in the same verse. He says, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So Christians are to be hardworking people. You ought to be some of the best employees at your company. You ought to give everything you've got and do everything you do as unto the Lord. For the glory of God, work hard, do your best, provide for your own family, but it's not just so you can lay up wealth and live comfortably. 
But the Christian way is to work hard to make money so you can take care of your family and so that you can have something to give to him who has need. Because there are people who have genuine needs, who have uh, disabilities or unable to work, or maybe they work but they don't make enough to take care of everything that they need to take care of. Medical bills pile up and, and, and all kinds of circumstances that you can imagine. But Christians work hard. Christians make money. Not so you can pack your bank account, but Christians work hard and make money so that once you fed your family, you can turn around and do good to somebody else who is in need. That's God's goal for your labor. So put off stealing and put on hard work and generosity. The fourth thing is this. Put off corrupt speech and put on edifying speech. Put off corrupt speech and put on Edifying speech. Verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now that, that word corrupt, the Greek word is sapros, and it just means rotten, worthless, or bad. Jesus used this same word in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 12 when he was talking about bad fruit that comes from bad trees. And then in Matthew 13, he used the same word to talk about rotten fish. Sometimes good fish stinks to me. I'm just going to be honest. Rotten fish, that's a whole other level, right? We in agreement? Nobody wants to eat bad fruit. Nobody wants bad fish. And what is bad fruit and rotten fish going to do to you? It's going to make you sick. It will make you sick. And that's the language that Paul uses when he speaks of our words. He says, don't let any corrupt speech, that bad, stinking, rotten, make you sick kind of talk come out of your mouth. Don't let corrupt speech, don't let a corrupt word proceed from your mouth. The Bible tells us that one day you will give an account to God for every idle word on your tongue. You just think of every word that you've said, whether anybody heard it or not, you will give an account for every idle word on the day of judgment. Don't let corrupt speech come out of your mouth. Corrupt, divisive words come from a corrupt heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words don't just come from nowhere. We are who we are on the inside in our heart, and what comes out of a person's mouth is the overflow of what's already on the inside. And so if you are marked by corrupt speech, that stinking, bad, rotten speech, you need to check not just your words, but you need to check your heart. Where does your heart stand between yourself and the Lord? Augustine put a sign up in his, his dining room that said this. It said, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. That's a pretty good sign that could go in some kitchens, in some dining rooms. Whoever will say anything evil, bad, negative about someone who isn't here is not welcome to sit at this table and eat. 
And that's really the attitude that Christians need to take up. Don't let corrupt speech come out of your mouth. But he says instead, what is good for necessary edification. You remember what edification means? What does it mean to edify? To build up. To build up. So we don't want to use divisive, corrupt, stinking, rotten speech that tears people down. But we want to use speech that builds people up. That's what God wants to produce in His people. Speech that edifies the church. Replace corrupt speech with edifying speech. And it doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect the person you're talking about. But it actually affects the hearers. He says this, What is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You see, you may have a conversation about someone who isn't present. And that does damage for the reputation of the person who isn't present. But that's not the only person it affects. It affects the person who's hearing your words. And it's the same when you're building up someone else. You talk good about somebody who isn't there. That's just something people don't do very much. You talk about how much that person loves the Lord. How faithful they've been over the years. You build up somebody. It's not just going to help that person, even though they don't know about it. But it actually, according to this verse, imparts grace to the hearer. You're teaching how people should live in the way you live. You're teaching other people how you should talk by the way you talk. And when you speak positively and in an edifying way about other Christians, that imparts grace. And God can use that for his glory. So put off corrupt speech and put on edifying speech. And he actually gives us a warning with that, too, in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sins of the tongue hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I said, who wants to see God do a work at Simmons Grove Baptist Church? Who wants to know the Holy Spirit is working and saving souls and reviving saints in this place? Raise your hand. Everybody in here would raise your hand. At least I hope you would. Three of you did just now. Thanks. But if there's one thing, and there's more than one thing, but if there's one thing that will hinder the work of God in a church or in a family or in his, your own life individually, it's sin of the tongue. It's sins of the tongue. So don't let your tongue be the reason that the Spirit of God is grieved and withdraws His influence in this church. And then fifth, put off bitterness and wrath and put on kindness and forgiveness. Put off bitterness and wrath and put on kindness and forgiveness. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is that, that kind of bitterness. Here's what it comes down to. It's that kind of bitterness and that harboring of a grudge and, and unforgiveness that has that loud, boisterous kind of quarreling or rage. The things that people just get real all, all, all torn up about. Get bitter or get better doesn't fix this kind of stuff. If you've been offended or hurt, that hurt is real. And you can't just decide, well, it doesn't mean anything. I'm gonna, just going to move on with my life. It doesn't matter. It actually does. Now, there's some things you just need to get over and move on. That happens sometimes. There's small things that we can hold on to and we shouldn't. But when someone has really hurt you, you have to acknowledge that hurt. 
But you can acknowledge it without bitterness. You can acknowledge it without becoming quarreling or leading up to rage or wrath. Instead, we acknowledge the hurt and then we do what? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You have to make a, a conscious choice that you're going to be kind to a person, even though they may have hurt you. And you have to make a conscious choice, even in a prayer, that, Lord, this person has hurt me, and that hurt is real. But by your grace and by your power, right now in this moment, I forgive them, and I'm going to be kind. That's the kind of choices that Christians have to make. And listen to this. There is no offense that any one of you could ever commit against me that's greater than my offenses against God. There's no offense that anyone in this room could ever commit against you that's greater than your offenses against God. Because if you sin against me, guess what you've done? You've sinned against another sinner. If I sin against you, you know what I've done? I've sinned against another sinner. But we sin against God, and what have we done? We've sinned against the holy, righteous creator of all things, who owns us, has rights to us, demands our allegiance, and is worthy of it. So there's no offense that any man can ever commit against another man that's greater than man's offense against God. And if you're a Christian, you understand that. You've realized that. And what did God do for you in your sin if you're a Christian? He forgave you. He was kind towards you, tender-hearted, sent Jesus into the world to live that sinless life that you could never live and to lay down his life for you, taking the punishment for your sin on the cross, being buried, rising from the dead, ascending back to the Father to intercede for you at his right hand until the day you're there with him face to face. He's forgiven you. And the reason we hold grudges against other people around us is because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. Because when we realize how much we've been forgiven, friend, it's nothing to forgive those around us who have sinned against us. Jesus taught us to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but, excuse me, before that, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Remember the man who had been forgiven a great sum? It was more money than he ever could have made in his entire life. The, 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 his, his, his master was going to sell him as a slave and sell his family as a slave and take everything he owned, and he would never be free again because of this debt he owed. But then he was shown compassion and forgiven. And he went away happy. He should have. But then he went and found a guy who owed him a far lesser debt. Let's just say 100 bucks. And he grabbed that guy by the throat and said, pay me everything or I'll have you thrown in jail. And the master who had forgiven him the large debt found out about that and took him and threw him into prison and said, you're not going to get out till every dime is paid. Jesus said this. Listen, this is a hard thing. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. OK, Jesus said, if you don't forgive one another, 
he will not forgive you. And I cannot live without the forgiveness of God. So I can't harbor bitterness. I can't hold on to anger against anybody. I've got to ask God to help me to let go of these things, to forgive quickly, and to be kind. Because God in Christ forgave me. If you're a Christian, God in Christ has forgiven you of all your sins. Saved you from hell. Promised you a home with him for eternity. And you're going to hold a grudge. That's not the way Christians live. Put off the old man. Put on the new. And let me just conclude with this. Jesus' forgiveness extends to every failure of yours to keep these things. We're working through these things this morning. We're reading these verses, and this stuff is tough. This is beyond us. We can't do this on our own. Of course we've all failed at these things. Guess what? Jesus' forgiveness extends even to these things. He says if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together for a time of prayer. I want to ask you to do three things right now as you pray. First of all, right now, search your heart and confess those sins that you need to put off. If God has revealed anything to you this morning, any sin that you've been harboring in your heart, I hope that you see it right now, that you'll confess it and forsake it. Ask God to help you to put on the righteousness that is opposite your sin. Help me to put off this sin, yes. But also help me to put on the righteousness that is opposite that sin. Life transforming work is what Jesus specializes in. And he can do that for you. And then thank him for his forgiveness, and for the power that he gives us to be made more like Jesus. Would you take a moment and pray now? Our Father, you have spoken so clearly in your word. There's nothing here that we can kick against or contradict very straightforward that as we have been made new in Christ so you enable us to progressively continually day by day put off that old man that old nature and put on the new because we are in Christ and Lord I pray that if someone here is living a lifestyle of sin because they're lost. And they've never been given that new life in Christ. Make that clear to them. That they may come to Jesus for forgiveness. For new life in Him. And may we all put off 
these old ways and put on the new in Christ. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.